Uh, good morning. I'm ch- uh, good morning, church. I'm Jordan. Good morning, Jordan. I'm church. So it's not a good start, is it? I've heard about all week. Last week when I was praying, I said crucifixed. Did y'all get that? I said, and I tried to correct myself. I said it again. You just pray for me. I don't know. Five kids, like asleep. We don't know. But um, we are in John today. Uh, before we get there, though, I want to remind you that we have an opportunity. Uh, we want to be, uh, when we do our outreach here at The Journey, we want to do it relationally. We want to do it uh, in a way that, that tries to find our way, uh, the, let the light of Jesus find its way into the darkness of our community relationally and not just fly over with big events. And so one of the ways we do that is through a ministry called Embrace Grace, uh, and, I, and I love it, and it's led by some of our ladies, and many of you have been involved in the previous baby shower, and, um, and those ladies have been loving on um, another young woman who is choosing life for her kiddo and walking with her through just the, the good news of Jesus and, and speaking with, with her about that in her life. And we have an opportunity to bless her with a baby shower coming up. And so May 20th, we're going to be throwing a baby shower for um, a young woman that they've been walking with. Is it Lushana? Did I say that right? Okay. And so we get a chance to just honor her and love on her. And so you can help by uh, buying the gift for that, showing up and just blessing her on that day. It's a beautiful way to show the love of Christ. And so if you can get that QR code from your from here, you can. If not, uh, Lindsay Gimme will be out in the lobby uh, after church today, handing you some um, things with that barcode on it, so you can go there and buy um, gifts for that baby shower. So, uh, if you got questions, you can you can grab you can see Lindsay after church, or uh, if you know Laura Bowen, um, either one of them can answer your questions. So, all right. Let's go to John 3.16. Let's go to John 3, and in this you find the famous passage of John 3.16, and we did look at some of that last week, and John 3.16 is, 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 is so quoted because it is such good news, and it is such a succinct truth about who God is and the way that he has loved us. He's loved us in such a way that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, have eternal life, that in that we see that we were going to perish without God doing something. That our greatest need in, in, in humanity's history is that God would do something about our sin problem that is leading to our death problem, right? We all die because we sin. We all have, have sin nature in us. And unless Jesus, unless God does something, we are without hope. And God has met our greatest need by giving his greatest gift of his son. And the good news is that anybody who would believe in him would not perish. We would no longer suffer but would have Eternal life, and that is, that is indeed the best news. And within that, though, I think sometimes we don't go deep enough because there is so much context to John chapter 3 and the gospel of John at large, and, 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 even, and, and that context even takes us deeper into that verse itself, the, the idea of, of why we're condemned to perish and the idea of what eternal life means. And so today, we're actually going to step out of John for the majority of today and let Jesus' story um, that, that he uses to illustrate um, this truth uh, to Nicodemus when he points back to Numbers 21. We're going to go there and then let that prompt us kind of on a journey through the Scripture. And, and, and I hope to answer a couple questions because um, I, if you're like me, you've struggled a little bit with the, the beautiful reality of whoever would believe in him will, will not perish but is going to have heaven, right? Uh, you've struggled with that a little bit because you know a lot of people that say they believe in him. You know a lot of people that say they, they believe in Jesus, but you see zero evidence or, or fruit in their life. And if you're like me, that, that concerns you. You don't quite know what to do with that because if it's just this idea of belief, then why are there people who would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus 
you know, died on a cross, that he was raised again in three days, and yet there's, there's zero impact on their life, right? Perhaps you have people like that in your life, and, and you try to get them to come to church with you, and they have no interest in that, or you've tried to get them to, you know, read the Bible with you, or, or pray, or, or whatever it is. Maybe they're in your own home, and, and, and they would say, yeah, I believe, but, you know, maybe they even have a story of, of a time whenever they, you know, you know, prayed a prayer or, or came you know, down front of a church at a, at a Bible school or VBS or church camp or something like that. And, 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 and so they have this kind of thing to point to and say, yeah, I believe. And yet you're like, why, why are some people so gripped to, to give their life fully to Jesus and, and, and you know, radically are transformed by Jesus? And other people can say that they believe but seem to have no impact on that. And, and so I, I want to look, I want to let this passage take us there. But I think that in the investigation of that, we will also find the answer to a, a very relevant question for all of us, and that is, how do we stop sinning? That's a profound question, isn't it? And you'd think, man, that's a, big, that's a big thing to tackle today, but it's actually, the answer is simple. It, it plays itself out in some really beautiful ways, but I, but I think that as we look deeper into this, we're going to see that the, the root of all of our sin is actually unbelief. That every sin that we struggle with, no matter how small, no matter how big, no matter how long we've been struggling with it, if we will trace it all the way down to its root, that there we will find that the root issue, the main reason that we even desire that in the first place is unbelief. And so we see John 3.16 and on down is, is talking a lot about belief. It's talking a lot about why we're condemned in the first place because we don't believe, right? And it's talking about how we are saved when we do believe, but I think there's some real insight as we go back to the story that Jesus pointed Nicodemus to in, in verse 14 of chapter 3. So we looked at it a little bit last week. We're going to go a little bit deeper and then let us let that take us on a little journey, like I said, from, from Numbers to Genesis to Romans to Matthew and then all the way back to John, and that's where we'll go. So um, let's go to Numbers chapter 21. It'll be on the screen, but if you want to flip there, it's, it's toward the front of your Bible. And, and this is where... Uh, this is the context for what Jesus points out in verse 14 of chapter 3 that Ian read for us just a moment ago. And, and when Jesus tells Nicodemus, hey, um, this is how salvation has to come. Just like the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up so that those who had been bitten would be saved. So the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So if you're wondering, if you've read that before and you're like, I don't, I don't understand Jesus. This is what he's talking about. It comes from Numbers 21. It's a pretty quick passage, and again, will require some context for us to understand. And I think the first question we can kind of um, ask ourselves as we're reading this is, what, what's up with God's response here? Because it, it seems a bit harsh if you're not following the full context. And so Numbers chapter 21, this is in verse 4 through 9. And, and the context here is the people of God have been rescued out of Egypt, out of their slavery. And so if you know uh, some of the story, God has established for himself a people. He rescued them um, through a crazy story of this guy named Joseph, where his brothers threw him in a pit. Y'all know that story? Joseph, the, the, the younger, cocky brother that had the coat of many colors, and his brothers get Yeah, well, that all ends with him being prince in Egypt and, and in power, and God giving him dreams and telling him, you know, hey, there's going to come a famine. You're going to need to save some stuff. Well, through that, Joseph saves many people, includes God's people. His own brothers end up coming back. This family that God is building end up finding refuge in Egypt. But then later, they find themselves no longer finding refuge in Egypt, but later, uh, after a new pharaoh, they are enslaved in Egypt. And so they cry out for years. They cry out for God to hear their 
their prayer uh, to, to, to release them, to allow them to be free as a people and no longer under the oppression of the Egyptian people. And through that, you have the story of the Exodus. And you probably know something about that. This is where God sends the plagues to get his people out of Egypt, Pharaoh, let my people go. Like, this is, this is all of that. So, and if you know how that story goes, is God does some incredible things to get his people out. And then he gets his people out, and he leads them, and he says, I'm going to give you a promised land. I have great, awesome plans for you. Egypt is going to be jealous of you because of where I'm taking you and what I'm going to do for you. But when they get out, they, they run into the Red Sea. What are we going to do? They start to doubt. God shows up for them, right? And then he parts the Red Sea, if you know the story. They walk across on dry land, and then uh, he, he begins to just, you know, show up for them. They get hungry. What are we going to do about food? Who brought lunch for all these hundreds of thousands of people? God says, I got you, manna from heaven, right? Now we're thirsty. God says, I got you, water from a rock. And, and on and on we go. We got God providing and showing up for his people. But then all throughout that, we see his people struggle to still trust him, even though he's shown up in a way over and over and over again. They struggle to trust him. And so Numbers chapter 21 comes after Numbers 14 and Numbers 13 and, 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 and Numbers 11, and there are all of these, these, these stories of the people complaining and fussing and saying, why did you even bother to bring us out of Egypt, Moses? Was there not enough graves there? Is that why God's brought us out here? Now we're going to starve to death. Or now God brings them to the promised land. Verse thir- or chapter 13 is where they send the spies in. And so they send the spies and Hey, go check out this land that God has given you. God, and, and there's some military like strategy there, but it, more than that, it's, it's God saying, hey, go, go see what I'm about to give you. But instead of seeing the blessing there, they see the danger and they see the people there are, are not to be trifled with and they see themselves and they're going, hey, there's no way we can beat these people. And so 10 out of the 12 uh, spies say, no way, we can't do it, we'll just die. So they kind of exaggerate the report, and they say, there's no way we can do it. Caleb and Joshua say, hey, like, why would we not do this? God has shown himself faithful. He's given these people into our hands. This is our land. Let's go take it. Let's let God do what he's already been doing. Well, they don't do it. They, they respond with a lack of faith, and God says, okay, I'm, I'm not going to kill you. Which is, he had that thought. But none of you who have showed this lack of faith are going to see the blessing that I have of the promised land. Okay, so now this comes after that. We go a little bit further. There's a couple other rebellions, but then you get to to Numbers chapter 21. That sets the stage just a little bit. And from Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Okay, so once again, they're feeling it, they're frustrated, and listen, we would be feeling it and we would be frustrated too. Okay, we would, we would be like, we need to relate to their impatient nature. We need to relate to what they're feeling. This has been a couple years now. Like, they've been in the desert for a good while now. This is not, this wasn't two days after the Red Sea. They are feeling it, and yet, this is their response. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, and there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. We joked last week, this is like our kids saying there's nothing to eat in our house. When we realize realize there's a lot to eat in our house, but there's not what they want, right? God is giving them food, but they're tired of manna. Any of y'all get burnt out on food? That's how I do it. Josie called me for lunch the other day. He's like, you want to go to lunch? 
sure, you like Popeyes, right? I was like, man, I'm kind of over that because I ate it like two or three times a week for like six weeks straight and then I burn out, right? Because that's what I do with food. I will eat it over and over and over again um, and then I'll get tired of it. So right now, if you want to go to lunch with me, I'm going to take you to Tidy. In a few weeks, I'll be tired of that, okay? That's just how I operate. Uh, they're tired of manna. They're tired of it. They're, 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 they loathe this, this what? This, what do they call it, worthless food? Now, is it worthless? No. Why? Because what's food's job? It's to sustain us, right? God's giving them what they need, but they're tired of it. And, and so God responds with some pretty, like, like, you got to have all that context to understand how God responds in verse 6. Because he says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. That's harsh. Right? And, and so God it says, hey, all of these people are going to die before we enter the promised land. It's going to take 40 years. But he's expediting the process, right? He's like, okay, I'm going to start. God says about himself, I have a long wick. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm long-suffering. I'm slow to anger. But these people have earned this move from God, and he sends fiery serpents, and they begin to bite the people, and they die. So the people came to Moses, and they said, we've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed to the people, and, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. Set it on a pole. Everyone who's bitten, um, when he sees it, they shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And, and if a serpent bit anyone... He should look at the, at the bronze serpent and live. So it, God doesn't take away the judgment, but rather provides a remedy, provides an anecdote, provides salvation from the judgment. Okay, And this is why this ties in to, to what Jesus is here to do, is to bring salvation. And he's un, unpacking this for Nicodemus, and he's saying, no, God, God is, it has to still send the judgment. You have earned that. No one just gets off the hook. God cannot be a just God and just say, you know what, let's just forget it. Let's just forget the past. I know you've spit in my face. You've been horrible, sinful, rebellious people, but you know what, let's just call it good. Let's just move on. No, God doesn't do that. He cannot do that and be a just God. And so he doesn't remove the judgment, but instead sends a remedy, sends salvation from the judgment. He does that through this strange bronze serpent. The very thing that has, is executing the judgment is also the thing that is held up to to be um, the salvation from the judgment. Jesus says, that's me. So what I'm here to do. Humanity has sinned. He's going to go on to say in John 3, they, they, they're condemned because they haven't believed, because they haven't trusted. And the only way to escape that condemnation is by the, the very thing that is sent for their judgment is going to be lifted up and, and um, put in their place, really, and held up the Son of Man on a cross so that all who would see him put their trust in him would be saved. So that's the big picture. But what I want us to ask is, what's up with God's intense response here? Because I laid that groundwork, but it's still, it's still a bit harsh, isn't it? It still feels like you can read this because you know it's in the Bible, but if you're trying to explain this to somebody that doesn't know anything about God, this is a little bit, it's a bit much to swallow, isn't it? If God loves people, it's God's a loving God, how would he do this? What, why would he allow this? Why would he send this kind of punishment? And so I want us to lean in just a little bit and, and, and see that what God is responding to is not just their grumbling in the moment. What God is responding to is actually their unbelief. Because you see, he has shown up for them radically, 
miraculously over and over and over and over again. And you know what he wanted, like what he was cultivating in this relationship? So that they would trust him. You understand, they hadn't earned it. They deserved to be in slavery in Egypt, frankly. They weren't entitled to God's love. And yet he comes and rescues them while they're still fussing, grumbling, sinful people. He gets them out of Egypt, not because they've earned it, but because he's good. Okay? And now that they're out of Egypt, he continues to show up for them. Why, have you ever thought about why God has done the things that he did? Like he didn't have to draw it out so much with the 10 plagues. He didn't have to like, like he could have had them build a bunch of boats so that when they got to the Red Sea, they, they would have a plan. Like why did he do this? He could have had them pack lunch and make provisions. Why did he set things up the way that he did? Well, he wanted to show up for his people. He wanted to bring them to the brink of utter disparity where they realize I have no hope. I have no hope in these moments. They get to the Red Sea, they have no hope. They can't cross it. They have all of their things, they have their families, they can't cross it. And now the Egyptian army, Pharaoh, has changed his mind and he's barreling down on them. They don't have the weapons, they don't have the means, they are going to be either taken back into slavery or crushed in this moment. They have no hope. God brings them to that moment Moses says, hey, don't fear. Our Lord will fight for us. And then, what's God going to do? How's he going to do? Nobody thinks, you know what? Does anybody know how to part water? Let's get the water. Let's get the engineers over here. Let's, let's build a path. And I think if, we, if somebody go distract the Egyptians, we just build a path, and maybe we, can, maybe we can get across this deal. We build a bridge. No, no one has a plan and, and God wants it that way because he wants to say, hey, now I'm going to provide for you. And he shows up. He parts the Red Sea. It's incredible. They get out into the desert, out in the wilderness. They have no way to feed all of these people. There's no means for this. God shows up. He brings manna from heaven. Right? He goes over and over again. He shows up miraculously, all screaming to these people, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people, and you can trust me. So then they get to the promised land, got, like, it's an awesome place. And guess what happens to awesome places? Like, the, the strongest, if you're from an evolutionary standpoint, the biggest, the strongest, the baddest people, they're going to take over that for themselves. They're going to occupy that. And that's what's happened. This, the land of Canaan, it's an awesome place. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's a rich and fertile land. So guess what? There's not just bums there. There's, like, big bad dudes there. Right? They got armies. They got plants. Like, you can't just roll up and say, hey, God said we, we got this now. See ya. No, they're going to have to be overthrown. But God has, is, is now, like when they, when they showed up at the Red Sea, he didn't expect them to know how he was going to do it. Like, he, he said, hey, I'll fight for you. But now he's bringing them to their first big test. Will you trust me? Now they're looking at this promised land. They see that there's giants there. It's there's no way. And instead of saying, hey, God's been faithful so far. There was no way we were supposed to get across the Red Sea, and now look at what happened to, to us. Look at what happened to it, like Pharaoh's army. Instead of saying, hey, God's got this, which is what Joshua and Caleb were saying. But look at how the people responded. Flip over, if you, if you turn with me to Numbers, flip over to chapter 14. because Listen to how they respond to Joshua and Caleb. 
They say to them in verse 9 and 14, hey, don't, don't, don't rebel against the Lord. In verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. Listen to how they respond. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Okay, the big idea of today's sermon is that unbelief like, is the root of all sin. We're going to see that play out in big ways, like macro ways from a community standpoint. We're also going to see that play out personally in your life and what leads you to overeat, look at porn, snap on your family. Like, it finds its way insidiously all the way down into the roots of our heart. But Jesus will say to a people, when a young man is brought and is, is demon-possessed and, and you know, they're like, hey, we can't cast this demon out. Jesus is going to say, like, hey, you, how long do I got to deal with your unbelief, you perverse generation? Unbelief leads to perversion. Unbelief leads to all kinds of sin. And right here in this moment, the unbelief of the Israelites say they respond to the faith of Joshua and Caleb with complete indignation, so much so that they say, we're going we're to kill these guys. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your God talk. I'm tired of it. I don't want to see another miracle. I don't see how this is going to go. And your, you know, faith talk is offensive to me, so much so that we should just kill these guys. God doesn't allow that to happen. The Lord says to Moses, back in Numbers 14, chapter, <clears throat> verse 11, he says, How long will these people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done? Among them. How long will these people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? Now, do you think that God is frustrated because these people are denying their ex like God's existence? I don't think anybody in the Israelite camp is going to be like, mm, I don't really believe in Yahweh. Like they have to, they have to acknowledge its existence. This is not an apologetic belief. Like from a, I don't believe in God, I believe in some other deity. The belief there and the belief in John 3 is not just an intellectual acknowledgement of, of existence. The belief, that idea of believing is, is to entrust into, is to put our faith into something, to stop trusting ourselves and instead to trust in him, to believe in. Or another way to put it is we might believe in God, but do we believe God? Do we actually believe what he says, like to the point that we trust it. Let's, let's go back a little bit further. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where all of, of the mess of sin started. So Genesis 3, God has given Adam and Eve a rich and luscious world that has all the provisions they could ever need. No reason not to believe in him. He shows up and walks with them every evening. He has fellowship with them. And yet, I want you to see how sin enters the world and what the root of it is. How Satan, what, what he comes for and, and, and what leads to the downfall of humanity. So, Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall, na- you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, you, you hear the question there? Did God really say this? The woman says to the serpent, yeah, we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you, sh- you can't eat of the fruit of that tree in the midst of the garden, right in the middle. That one, if, if you even touch it, you'll die. Listen to the undermining, verse four. But the serpent said, ha, you won't really die. For, for God knows that, when, like, that's not the appeal. Just saying, ah, you know what? You won't really die. That's not what piques Eve's interest. That's not what leads to the sin. The next part is so important because here's what he says. He, 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 he seeds this doubt, this unbelief in here. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what does he do? Let me translate that for you. He says, I don't know. You're not going to die. God's holding out on you. That's where he keeps the good stuff. He doesn't want you to enjoy that tree because that's for him. He's holding out on you. He's not who you think he is. He's not good. This is all undermining or underneath what Satan is whispering here. So, verse 6, the woman saw the tree, and she sees it differently now, doesn't she? She sees that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that that tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloth. And there comes the unraveling of the good gift of life that God has given us as sin enters in, and fractures have rippled all the way into our world today in ways that are uncountable. But right there in that moment, what, what do you see? That, that the, the fruit, like the, the very underlying reason that Eve reaches for that fruit is because she allowed herself to believe that God wasn't really meeting all of her needs, that God wasn't really good, and that his way wasn't really to be trusted, and that ultimately, if she wanted to be happy, what she needed to do was to have that fruit. Listen to Martin Luther. He says this, uh, The sin underneath all of our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent, that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ, and must make, take matters into our own hands. Martin Luther says, The, the, the sin underneath all of our sins... It's when we begin to trust the lie that we actually can't trust God, and therefore we have to take matters into our own hands. R.C. Sproul said, said it this way, we fundamentally, in our basic root nature, do not believe God. We may believe in God, but we don't believe God. Because if we believe God, if we really believe God, why would we ever sin? What is it about sin that entices us to risk the displeasure of God, to act against God by choosing it? He said, you say, well, we desire it. We have such a desire for sin that we get caught up in that desire, and so we choose it. So he's taking us philosophically, think about why do you sin? He said, well, it's desirable. We see that from Eve, right? It it looked good. She wanted it, right? But he he goes on to ask the question, but why do we desire it? Why does sin have such an, an appeal to us? Because we believe that if we commit the sin, we will be more happy than if we don't commit the sin. 
R.C. Sproul says it's that simple when we get right down to the bottom. That we begin to believe that we will be more happy if we commit the sin than if we don't commit the sin. We sin because we want to, and we want to because we're looking for an increase in our happiness, and we figure, if I do it the way that God says, I'm going to be somehow cheated or deprived out of personal happiness. So when I think that sin will make me happy, at that point, I simply don't believe what God says about it. Here's the road we're taking. If you want to change your sin struggles, if you want to overcome sin, the way to do it is actually to change what you believe about God. That's the only way to lasting change. It's not, if we're just doing sin management, we're only pruning fruit. You want to actually see change in your life? You have to change how you view God because that's the root of all sin. Let's go to a different place. Let's go to Romans 14, chapter 23. This is a really interesting one, a really small passage of Scripture, one verse that really is in a, in a bigger context, but it says something incredibly profound at the end. At the very end of Romans 14, 23, it says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. But you need to know the context of what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about um, the, the struggle of some people believing that it's okay to eat meat or drink certain drinks. And Paul's saying, it, 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 you actually have freedom to do either one. Okay, because we've talked about this before, but there's some people, like it, meat was the primary issue in this day. The, almost exclusively the place that meat was sold was in markets, and almost exclusively the place that the markets got them was from pagan temples where people brought animals and sacrificed them to a pagan god, and then after their sacrifice, they're taken to the market and sold as meat. And some people were really struggling with their conscience, feeling like if I buy this meat and eat it in my home, I'm taking part in some pagan idol worship. And so there was debate in the, in, the, in the early church. You see Paul addressed this in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. And, and essentially, I'll summarize this argument for you. He, so, he goes, actually, you're free to eat the meat. You're not in sin if you eat the meat. As long as you're not there worshiping the idol, you're fine if you buy that meat, take it in your home, and you give thanks to God for it because you know he's the real God who provided that animal. You give thanks to God for it, you're good. But he'll say, if that's causing your brother to stumble, then don't eat the meat. That's his, that's his argument, essentially. He's like, if this is an issue, then just don't get meat that night when you invite brother so-and-so over. Move on. Because your fellowship with brother so-and-so and the unity of the church and the growth of brother so-and-so is far more important than you exercising your freedom to eat the meat. Okay? Read Romans 14. Read 1 Corinthians 9, 8 and 9. Check me on that, okay? Walk through that. But, but here's, we got to know a little bit of that because here's what Paul says in Romans 14. I'll read a little bit more of the context. We'll keep that verse on the screen. Verse 20, he says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's not good to eat meat, or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. This can apply to our alcohol conversation. If it's causing somebody to stumble, it's not good. You could say it's a good gift from God, but the moment it's causing one of your brothers or sisters to stumble, it becomes not good, and you should move on. Like, hold that in an open hand. The faith, verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Okay? He's saying, you're, you're right. You're not in sin. You can enjoy your freedom. Eat the meat. Drink the wine. 
but you don't need to like boast that over the rest of the church in such a way that brings division and controversy and shame and guilt on everybody else. He's saying, you enjoy that just between you and the Lord. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Saying, if, you, if, if you're feeling the need to justify yourself amongst everybody else and let them know just how righteous and holy and, and how much more like Jesus you are because, because I can have a beer. My church doesn't condemn alcohol. Right? If you have to justify yourself against other people from more traditional churches or different backgrounds, then Paul says, you need to shut your mouth. That's not the posture that we have. You're more insecure than they are. They've been brought to a place where they think alcohol is wrong for a reason. And if you have to feel like you got to win an argument with them, then you have the weaker conscience. And you need to go figure out your identity issues with Jesus. And then you can go love your neighbor and not pick that fight, okay? So, but this is so interesting because he says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What is he saying here? He's saying, listen, at the same time as all of that is true, if you're there and you're not sure, if you're the younger Christian and you're just not sure that, you know, Eating this is really okay, but you go ahead and do it because of the pressure of the community, the pressure of people, or whatever. Then that is a sin. Why? Because what led to that action? Fear of man or fear of God? Fear of man. Fear of man is not faith. That's self-protection. That's... That's, I don't, I don't want to be mocked. So, just make it clear, let's just go there with the alcohol. If you're like, man, I, I really don't think, I, I, I'm not sure it's okay for people to drink at all and be a Christian, but I know that I can't, for sure. But man, now I'm around these other people, my, maybe my community group likes to have a drink sometimes. And, and instead of speaking up and say, hey, I've just got a conscience issue, I can't, I can't join you in that fellowship, but you go anyway and you have a drink, Paul says, you're in sin in that moment. Because it's not coming from faith, it's coming from fear of man. Rather, he would rather you say, you know what, I'm just not sure yet, or I I actually think that might be a sin, I'm still struggling myself, so I'm going to abstain for the moment. Because that's saying, I don't want to dishonor God, I'm not sure what God says yet, so I'm going to study it, I'm going to pray over it, I'm going to deliberate, and I'm going to seek God's will. And then when I'm sure what God's will is, then I'll, I'll let you know. But he's saying, Whatever doesn't proceed, he caps all that off saying, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. You see how what he's saying is actually the same thing of what Martin Luther is saying, what R.C. Sproul is saying? That the root of all of our sin is unbelief. Paul's saying it's not about eating or not eating. It's about are you trusting in God or are you trusting in what other people think of you? Are you trusting in what the community is saying? Okay. Now, let's go one more place. Matthew chapter 6. We, we covered this a few months ago. Sermon on the Mount. Famous passage, Matthew 6, 33. Anybody know what it says? Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Right? Okay. We'll, we'll work on it. That's okay. I thought, some, I thought I'd have some King James people with me. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? And, and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. 
Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. This is the context we're talking about. I want to go a few verses earlier where Jesus is setting this up. Jesus is unpacking who God is, how, their peop- how his people should interact with God. Okay, and, and, and he says this in verse 25 of chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the, and, and the body more than clothing? Okay, so we can, we can say that. We can just talk about judge, uh, anxiousness and kind of poke fun at the people who are really anxious. But what he's getting at here is don't let yourself do what the people in Numbers 21 did. You understand that? Let's keep it all connected. People in Numbers 21 started to see the long trip ahead of them around the Red Sea. They started to see the long time it's going to be before they get any kind of rest in the promised land. And they started to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if God's going to show up on this one. Tired of this manna? No, I don't know. Jesus is saying, don't let yourself do that, okay? Don't let yourself go there. Isn't life about more than just what you eat and whether you enjoy your meals or not or whether you like your clothes or not? Has not God promised to meet your needs? He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? This is... This is Jesus talking about anxiousness, but I'm telling you, it's all getting at the same deal, the message that God is trying to teach us. What he wanted the Israelites to know is that he's not just a God who shows up in your deepest, darkest moments to get you out of your sin problem and the wrath. He's not less than that, but he's so much more than that. He doesn't just want a people who cry out to him whenever it comes down to the, the crux of the conversation is where, do you gonna, where are you going to go whenever you die? Well, I don't know. Well, you have no hope on your own. You need to trust Jesus. Okay, then I'll trust Jesus. That is just the beginning. The gospel is not less than that. It is gloriously that. Amen? That we have no hope before a holy God and Jesus has made a way. That is, that is the good news of the gospel, that we don't have to perish because we, we should trust in Jesus and have eternal life. But... More than just being saved in that very pivotal and crucial moment, out of slavery, out of death, God wants us to, to also walk with him in faith in the everyday things of our life. He wants us to be able to believe that even in the desert, when we're hungry, tired, impatient, tired of these people, tired of this walk, not sure when it ends, He wants us to be able to trust him. He wants us to look to him and go, I don't see how this is going to pan out, Lord, but I've seen you do this. I've seen you send plagues. You sent frogs, Lord. Why'd you even send frogs? You sent frogs. You sent gnats. You sent all these things. You got us out of Egypt. Why didn't you take us the other way so we didn't have the Red Sea? I don't know, but you did it, Lord, and you got us through the Red Sea, and now you, you, you brought manna from heaven. I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. And so I'm going to be happy, and I'm going to be, content, I'm going to be content. I'm going to give you praise for what you've given me, and I'm going to trust in you. I don't see how we're going to conquer these people. I have no way. Like, we run the odds, Lord, and it looks real bad for us, but I'm going to trust in you because you're the one who showed up for us. 
This is what he's inviting us to. This is the kind of faith and the life of faith that he's inviting his people to. And, and the sin of unbelief is so serious. And the reason that, that Jesus is talking about it to Nicodemus is because it is the very thing that leads us to condemnation. It is the very thing that leads us to deserve eternity in hell. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 3. He says that everybody, like Jesus doesn't come into a neutral world where people are mostly good and you know, if he can get you onto the Jesus side, then good. But some people are on the dark. No, he comes into a world that is completely and utterly condemned. Verse 18 of chapter 3 of John. And when he shows up with provision for our greatest need, he's, he's showing us that he will meet our every need. And it is in that invitation that he's actually restoring the life that he intended for us to have all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. You see, Genesis 1 and 2, it was an awesome place. It was paradise. But you know what was most awesome about it? They had God as their provider. They had relationship, fellowship, and trust in him. The sin wasn't as much about the fruit. It was about the fracturing of the trust that they had in God as their provider. So the salvation that he's offering, that Jesus comes to restore what was lost, is not just about getting people out of hell and into heaven whenever they die. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. See, oftentimes we talk about uh, John 3, 16, we rejoice in the eternal life, and we should, but we need to know what eternal life is. It's not simply out of hell and into heaven when we die. Eternal life doesn't begin when we die. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. Remember last week we talked about how the way that we're born again is the resurrection that will happen at the end. Whenever the, the world is made new and our bodies are resurrected, that power comes from the future and into our present and causes us to be born again. Okay, So as a result of that, we have the kingdom now. It's, it's not fully consummated, but it's inaugurated, and it's here, and it's present. So part of that is, is trusting in him in these moments. And so let's let Jesus define eternal life. He says in John chapter 17, when he's praying to his father in the garden before he's going to the cross, he defines eternal life this way in John, 3, 7, or John 17, verse 3, rather. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. This is Jesus talking to his father God the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what is eternal life? That, that we would know God, that we have this fellowship with him, that we have this, this knowledge of him that leads to a trust in him, that leads to a life that is increasingly relying upon him and decreasingly full of sin. So the promise of belief in, of Jesus is eternal life. That eternal life starts now, and it is about knowing God. So let's, let's run to application then. How do we avoid sin? Fundamentally, you trust God. How do you stop sinning? Start trusting God. It sounds really simple, but I want you to think about it. I want you to think about the sins that you struggle with. Why is it? that you do what you do? 
Why is it that you work too much? If you'll allow yourself to go there, behind that is unbelief. It's, un it's failing to believe that God will provide for you financially. Or it might be failing to, to believe that, that your identity in Christ is enough and therefore you've got to go earn it with other people. Let's go even more practical. Why do you overeat? We don't talk about that one a lot, do we? Gluttony is a sin, though. Why do you overeat? What are you not believing about God that leads you to believe that indulging in that food will make you happy? Because remember, you go there with R.C. Sproul, and he says, we, yeah, we desire, but the reason we desire it is we've allowed ourselves to believe that it'll make me happy. That committing this sin will make me happier than not committing this sin. Therefore, there I go. Martin Luther says, the root of it is, we don't believe that God is good enough. His plan is good enough. So, we've got to take matters into our own hands. We've got kids in here today. I won't be too, like, crass, but you, we can think about our sexuality. We can think about why we turn to images on the screen. Why are you addicted to that mess, men and women? Why do you go there, single or not single? I heard a psychologist say this week, Christian, but not really what she was talking, said, I don't really care that you, like, you, you could tell me you look at it 23 times a day on the internet. That's not the big deal to me. The question I want to know is why. What she's getting at is saying, what are you trying to meet by clicking on those images, by going there, and what are you not believing about God? that allows you to desire that. Single or not single, it doesn't matter. If you're, if you're single, you're like, man, I don't have a, I don't have a way to enjoy that. I, 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 you know, So this seems, I seem entitled to this or whatever. God's saying, am I not sufficient for you? Can you not trust that I will be good enough for you? Your marriage is a mess. You're not being intimate. You're, you're having those struggles. So. Now, we're, now we feel a little more entitled, right? Now we got this, whatever, right? And, and so we begin to believe that God's plan of being faithful, God's plan of only enjoying that gift in marriage isn't really a good plan because what I think will make me happy right now is some indulgence. And so we click. I'm oversimplifying it, but I'm telling you there's the root. The Bible is telling you there's the root. Ask yourself hard questions. What am I not believing that is leading to this behavior? Stop behavior management. This is why Jesus is telling Nicodemus, hey, dude, you ain't going to get there with behavior management. I'm not here to give you some new rules so you can excel to varsity level and be better than everybody else. You've got to be born again. The way that you're born again is by faith. This is going from the physical world to the spiritual world. It requires a new birth. The new birth only comes through faith. We have to put our trust out of ourself, out of what we can see, and into Jesus. This is what leads to eternal life. This is what leads to flourishing. So how do we avoid sin? We trust God. How do we stop sinning? We, we change how we view what we believe about God. How do, you, how do you develop trust? 
If how we avoid sin is we trust in God, how do you develop trust? Let me, like, if I just say, hey, do you know John Foster? That's a made-up guy. You're like, no. I, do you trust him? Well, no. Why don't you trust him? Because I don't know him. Well, how would you build trust in him? you got to get to know him. Right? We know that with human relationships. This begins to explain 2 Corinthians 3.18. I quote this a lot. But it says this, that, that we all with unveiled face behold the glory of God and are transformed from one, from, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Right? This comes from the... <clears throat> For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, so I talk about that a lot. That's how we are transformed. That's how we change into like being like Jesus. But, but listen, what's behind there? How do we become more like Jesus? Is it we got to stop sinning? we got to crack down on our sin? Really deal with our unbelief? No, the way that you deal with your unbelief is to, get to, is to trust Jesus. How do you trust Jesus? You Get to know more and more and more about Jesus. The more you know about Jesus, the more you will trust Jesus. The more you trust Jesus, the less you will sin. This is simply what the Bible is saying. Because the more we know him, the more we trust him. And the more we trust him, the less we sin. Let's end with Romans 8.32. And I want you to think about this really practically. Like, let's apply this, church. There's a lot of, um, a lot of like, conventional pop culture wisdom, pop psychology wisdom that says, hey, you know how you can become a happier person, more productive person? You should spend um, a little bit of time in the morning and a little bit of time at night writing down three things you're grateful for. And guess what? It's actually powerful. But you know why it's powerful? Because they're touching on something that the Bible is saying explicitly here. Is when you allow yourself to see the good that you do have you're not as focused on what you don't have. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, like, here's how, you, here's how you cut out anxiety. You pray about it, you leave it with the Lord, and then you think about what's good. You shift from thinking about what you don't have, what you're not sure about, you leave that with the Lord, and then you turn and you actively think about what's good, righteous, true, perfect, praiseworthy, Think on these things. So I want you to think about that. Instead of writing, I mean, write down three things you're grateful for, but also spend some time at the end of every day. Do this for a week. Let's see what this does, church. Spend some time at the end of every day writing down where you struggled and where you sinned. And then ask yourself the question, Lord, what was I not believing about you that led me to this sin? Where was unbelief present in my life that led me to this sin? And then we can join. Like the sinner standing before Jesus said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I, I believe in you, Jesus. But when it comes to overeating, when it comes to this addiction, when it comes to my marriage, when it comes to this, when it comes to my job, when it comes to my kids, when it comes, and it comes, and it comes, and it comes, and it comes, an anxiety attack comes and panic attack, like it comes, doesn't it? We could say, I believe, Jesus. Help my unbelief. And then you can claim this promise, this truth over your life, Romans 8, 32. We can let this meal that we celebrated be a reminder of his provision. When we wonder whether or not he's good enough, we remember, oh yeah, he, 
He gave his own life for us. When we wonder whether or not he'll come through, when we wonder whether or not he is still able to save, we remember, oh yeah, yeah, he gave his life and he came back from the dead. So Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Back to Matthew 6. Don't be anxious. How could you be anxious when you have a God who gave his own son for you? Do you not trust him? He provides for the birds. Won't he provide for you? Will you let that kind of belief begin to permeate and transform your life? Will you take your trust off of yourself and put it all in on Jesus? If you've never been saved, that's the opportunity. It's not just an intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus existed. It's a removing of your trust from yourself, your schemes, your whatever self-help, whatever you had that you were relying on and saying, Jesus, I believe you were the only hope I've got and I'm gonna go all in with you. That's why when we baptize people, we don't just say, hey, do you believe in Jesus? We say, hey, do you believe Jesus is the only way to be saved? Yeah. Has he forgiven you of your sins? Yeah. Have you made him the Lord of your life? Yeah. Does that mean, that means you'll do whatever he says and go wherever he says to go? Yeah. Because that's what believing in him, right? That we gotta believe in him, we gotta believe him, we gotta go all in with him, and that leads us to eternal life, knowing God, having a life that trusts him. And then, man, we glorify him. John Piper says God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. It is better to know God. It is, it is better to have known God in, <clears throat> let, me, let, me, let me write it. Is knowing his provision in poverty is better than having prosperity and not trusting in the Lord. Knowing his sufficiency in struggle is better than an easy life without dependence on him. We'll say that again, I'll pray. Knowing his provision in poverty is better than having prosperity and not trusting in the Lord. Knowing his sufficiency in struggle is better than a life of ease without having any dependency on him. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to see your goodness beyond the circumstances of our life and to press through them and trust you with the circumstances of our life. May your spirit come and stir in us a faith that leads to transformation as we give more and more of ourselves, more and more of our hope over to you. May your goodness reign supreme this morning. As we sing, may your, your glory, your goodness, your love for us reign supreme and lead to transformed lives. May this get all the way down into our hearts and break the chains of addiction, break the chains of broken lives all throughout this, of anxiety, of, of, of fear, of addiction, all of those things, Lord. May you break the chains by simply showing yourself as a God who can be trusted inviting us as your people to come and give you our junk, give you our burdens, and let you take them from us and give us rest. It's in Jesus' name.